Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is The Universe Next Door. Welcome to The Universe Next Door, and also welcome to the realm next door, so to speak the realm of spiritual beings, because today we're going to be talking about angels and spiritual beings. While angels are spiritual beings, those terms are not used interchangeably. And so I hope to bring a little bit of clarity to sort of uh, the ranking of spiritual beings and also some of the different terms. But I mainly want to get into uh, something very interesting in the book of Revelation that I think a lot of people either A, miss, or B, are somewhat uncomfortable with. And at this point, you may be thinking, "Um, Nick, that describes all of Revelation. Uh, And you may be right. Actually, you are right. Everybody is uh, wrong and uncomfortable about everything in Revelation. But we're going to be talking about one specific area, and that is the seven letters that are written in in Revelation 2 and 3 and who they're actually addressed to. Because when you look closely, they're actually not addressed to the church of Laodicea and the church of Philadelphia. No, not that Philadelphia. You're like, wow, Philadelphia has been around a long time. Not that Philadelphia. It's another one. But they're not actually addressed to these seven churches. They're addressed to the angels of the seven churches. So we're going to be examining that for a little while. I'm going to show you why I think sort of the common slash traditional view Uh, doesn't work and doesn't actually make sense. And that'll hopefully clarify a couple things here. Um, And of course, this is in line with our series on the divine council. And a big part of that uh, divine council worldview is recognizing that the biblical authors had a very spiritual worldview, a very supernaturally driven worldview, both in terms of scripture and the reality that they were living in and that these, uh, that the books of the Bible are actually set in very much including revelation. So we're going to get into some very interesting things today. Um, All things that we can't see. So that always interests me to talk about things that are described to us that that, that we can't see. uh, But of course, one day we'll see. But until then, why don't you see the follow button wherever you're listening on Apple or Spotify, etc. Go ahead and hit follow and notify so that you don't miss any content that's going to be coming out. Generally, our episodes are released Tuesday nights at 5 p.m. That's Eastern time. I always forget other people exist too. Like California, that's like the middle of the what is that? Two o'clock in California. Yeah. Every time I interview somebody from out of state, I always get the times mixed up or thankfully sometimes they get the time mixed up and they'll email me and be like, Hey, I'm so sorry. I forgot. It's like four o'clock there. Can we do it tomorrow? That's always like, yes, it's just, it's so affirming to me to know I'm not the only one who gets those wrong, but uh, that's 5 p.m. Eastern time Tuesdays, but we're also going to be releasing some other stuff. We're going to start a new segment that'll come out occasionally pretty soon here. Uh, So make sure you hit follow and notify so that you don't miss anything. And I also wanted to say thank you so much to those of you who give to support the universe next door and who give to support the Apologetics Inc. ministry. This literally wouldn't be possible without you. So thank you so much. And for anyone who is uh, either led or just interested in giving, there is a link down in the bottom of the description that it either says donate or give that you can click. So thank you so much. Uh, But with that being said, let's get into all things angels. And we're going to start with kind of like a brief sort of overview here. This is going to be simple. I'm going to keep it simple, mainly because A, I'm simple. 
but B, because I think a lot of the stuff, while there are a lot of roots in ancient culture, while there is, um, you know, obviously you're going between Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and there, there's a lot going on with the different terminology and stuff like that. I think the concept as it's described to us is fairly simple. Um, and you're probably sitting there thinking, Nick, how is how is a creature filled with eyes, with foreheads and different animal parts? How is that simple? I don't mean simple in that way, but in the way that it's described to us, I think sometimes we over-divide and over-exaggerate things to the point where some things are probably not meant to be taken literally and physically. So we'll get to that in a few minutes. But to start, the term we're all most familiar with in regard to spiritual beings, in regard to the spiritual realm, would be angel. Okay, everyone knows the term angel. If you've never picked up a Bible, you know the term angel. Um, And in, in Hebrew, that's malak. And so when you think of the term angel, what do you think of? You might think of like one of those fat babies with wings. Um, you might think of like a woman with wings and long hair. Uh, you might think of the movie Wonderful Life. Whatever it is, it's it, we have all these images of angels in our mind that have sort of been burned into our mind. And actually, all of them are incredibly inaccurate. Uh, even just starting with the idea um, from, from Wonderful Life, the idea that every time a bell rings, an angel gets their wings. Well, we all, we all picture angels having wings. However, nothing in scripture signifies that they have wings. When we get into the cherubim and seraphim a little bit, you'll you'll see some wings there. Um, those aren't angels. They are spiritual beings. They are um, you know, beings who reside in the spiritual realm, but they're not angels. The word angel literally means send or messenger. So angels are sort of lower ranking spiritual beings that are set out to uh, send messages from God to people. But interestingly enough, they're never described having wings. They're usually, they're not described just looking like crazy out of the ordinary. And in fact, when they do appear to people, they, they look just like humans. They're confused with humans. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews, it's actually said that we might be entertaining angels without even knowing it. So angels appear as though they're humans. Uh, an example of this is when you read the book of Genesis and when you read chapter 19, for example, and you have these three spiritual beings appear um, to Abram, one of them being God, the angel of the Lord, uh, which would be Malach Elohim. You have these three figures and they appear just like people. They look just like people. They eat just like people. They do things just like people. Uh, and, in, and in fact, the people in the town want to drag them out and do unspeakable things to them. Okay, so they appear just as though they're people, and Abram thinks they're people. Um, so that's the first thing we need to recognize is that angels are, th- there's a lot of misconceptions going around um, involving angels and what they look like and what they do, but they're messengers and they appear as though they're people. Uh, now, of course, could they just be taking the form of people, manifesting in some way as people? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's certainly possible. I don't, I don't know what they actually look like in the spiritual realm, but as far as they're described to us, they always look like people. And sometimes they are described with, you know, a bright light around them. People are terrified when they appear to them, but they do appear as though they are, uh, as though they are people. So another thing that I think is, is said, uh, somewhat commonly that is maybe misunderstood is that when a loved one passes on, they, they might become an angel. And this is another thing where of course you want to be careful with how you handle this, but Again, that that's not what an angel is, and that's not the picture we get of an angel. When a loved one passes on, if they know the Lord, they go immediately to be with Christ. I think we can take Paul's word on that. Okay, he makes it very clear that we go immediately to be with Christ. Um, so, 
Of course, that much is true. But in terms of becoming angels, angels are different creatures, and it's a good thing they don't turn into angels because salvation is not for angels, according to Hebrews. So, thankfully, that's not the case. That wouldn't be a good thing. And now, the third misconception, and this has more to do with demons, which are not necessarily fallen angels. They're fallen sons of God. Uh, and there actually is a view uh, that's, uh, that, of course, still exists now. I kind of lean toward it. I don't necessarily know if I hold it. I definitely lean toward it. Uh, but it was held by the ancient Jews, especially in the Second Temple period. And, and it seems like maybe even into the New Testament, though it's somewhat speculative. Uh, and that is that demons are actually the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. And I'll link the, the Nephilim uh, episode in the description below. We're not going to turn this into a Nephilim uh, a Nephilim fest here, but I'll link that, that episode in the description. The Nephilim, of course, come from Genesis 6 and from Numbers 13, and this is when the sons of God come down and they take uh, women, human women, as their wives, and they end up impregnating them. Uh, and so the sons of God impregnate human women. As a result, you get the Nephilim. And this is actually a bigger story than most think because it has a lot to do with the conquest of Israel. Um, it's, it's mentioned twice in the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, and then it's hinted at a few times in the New Testament, but it's all over Second Temple period literature as well. So it certainly influenced uh, the worldview of the biblical authors. But the view says that as the Nephilim were killed and defeated, whether it be through the flood, whether it be through the conquest, whether it be Goliath, who was a descendant of the Nephilim, uh, that their disembodied spirits have to go somewhere. So if you think about a Nephilim being in some way what would be described as a quote-unquote demigod, meaning sort of half man, half, again, quote-unquote God, lowercase g God, meaning Elohim, spiritual being, um, when they die, the body would have to go somewhere, okay, and disintegrate, and then the spirit would have to go somewhere. Well, when we die, as as we say, uh, as we said earlier, the Apostle Paul tells us we go immediately to be with Christ if we're believers. That's where our spirit goes to dwell. Well, where did the Nephilim spirit go to dwell? And so this this idea is that the Nephilim, uh, their disembodied spirits are what demons are in the Bible. And of course, we see in um, I believe it's Second Peter that they're locked in Tartarus, and so there's there's more on that I did too in the Annihilationist series. We got into hell and defining hell, so you could check that out too. But um, that's that was a popular view, and that was the view during uh, the time of the ancient Jews. So that's certainly a possibility. When you think about the question, how did demons originate? What's their origin story? What is it? Think about it. It's not given in the Bible. Oftentimes, you'll hear people quote from Revelation 12 and say, well, when Satan fell, a third of the angels fell with him, and they're described as stars there. A third of the stars fell with him. Well, there's one issue with that interpretation. Revelation 12 describes the birth of the Messiah. It doesn't describe creation. It doesn't describe pre-fall. It doesn't describe even pre-New Testament. It starts by describing the birth of the Messiah and what happens after that as Satan is waiting to devour the Savior of the world. And so when you get this idea of a third of the stars falling, it can't be an origin story in regard to demons because demons existed prior to the birth of Christ. So all that to say, there is no origin story directly given for how demons came about. We know that they're corrupted spiritual beings. We know that they're fallen, but it doesn't actually give us an origin story. You know, you might have heard things like uh, they rebelled before humanity, you know, before the earth was formed and uh, Satan and his angels rebelled. But that that doesn't come from scripture. That comes from Dante's Inferno and, and books like that. 
So all that to say, we don't really know their origin story, and that's a third misconception, is that angel or, or that demons are specifically fallen angels. Remember, they are fallen spiritual beings, but the term angel is very specific. It means what? It means messenger, one who is sent. They are spiritual beings, but they're lower-ranking spiritual beings who are sent with messages from God to deliver to humanity. Um, so... Now that we have angels, you're also probably familiar with familiar with terms such as cherubim, seraphim, watchers, sons of God. Uh, we, we get this really complicated picture that starts brewing up because these are kind of weird terms. They're not terms that you see a ton. In fact, seraphim, it's used one time in scripture. It's only found one time in Isaiah 6. So these aren't incredibly common terms. Cherubim, of course, is much more common. Uh, Satan is described as a guardian cherub, they would guard God's throne. So Satan was described as a guardian cherub in Ezekiel uh, 28, and that, of course, goes along with uh, Isaiah 14, like we've talked about in the past. But you really see a clear description of the cherubim in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel 10. And if you've studied Ezekiel 1 or read through Ezekiel 1, you'll see these strange creatures, and you'll notice that they're never actually referred to um, as cherubim in Ezekiel chapter 1. It's not until we get to chapter 10 that we see them described in detail and by the name cherubim. Um, and of course, cherubim is plural. Anytime you see the im at the end of something, that the singular would be cherub. Um, but the cherubim are described in detail. Now, you have to keep in mind that when you read books like Ezekiel, what would Ezekiel have been influenced by? The Babylonians. I mean, you see it right in the beginning of the book. Let's look at chapter, chapter 2 and 3. On the fifth of the month, it was a fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, and the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzai, by the Kabar River in the land of the Babylonians. Okay, there the hand of the Lord was on him. So we know that he would have been influenced by Babylonian culture and writing. Uh, it's the same with the book of Daniel. And in fact, in chapter four, you see the term watchers uh, in the book of Daniel, and, and they have authority. The watchers have authority. They're, when you remember uh, Nebuchadnezzar going off into the wilderness and being a madman for seven years, who was that decision decreed by? It was decreed by the watchers. Because you just popped the, you know, the, the, the thought into your head, well, obviously it was decreed by God. Well, actually, it was decreed by the watchers in order to bring glory to God. Now, let me pull up that passage real quick, and I'll show you. This is Daniel... 4 uh, verse 17 it says the decision is announced by the watchers the holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most high is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people so again we touched on this passage last week we've mentioned it many times because it's such a unique and important passage in regard to the divine council worldview you see that authority is given to the watchers and the watchers are who they're spiritual beings. They're angels. Um, and in Babylonia, uh, Babylon, in ancient Babylon, they've actually uncovered uh, what are called Apkalu. Um, they were these, these angel-like figures. We've talked about this in the Nephilim episode too, so go back and check that out. Um, but they actually found these figurines buried. And the reason, one of the reasons they're called watchers is because they would bury them outside of the foundation of buildings to watch over the buildings. So they believed that they were these spiritual beings who would watch over, um, watch over the Babylonian people, watch over their buildings, watch over what's going on. And, and they were sent by God in order to do this. So it doesn't rob God of his sovereignty to say any other spiritual beings have power. That's proof right there in Daniel 4, 17. Rather, 
we see that God, through his sovereignty and through his power, gives these spiritual beings the freedom to act, just as he gives us the freedom to act. And when they act falsely, and when they act wickedly, and when they act inhumanely, they're judged for it, like we see in Psalm 82. So again, this decision brings uh, glory to God. It, It highlights God's sovereignty rather than takes or steals from it. But again, we see the term watchers, and it's only used in Daniel. Why? Where was Daniel writing from? He was writing from Babylon. Okay, so this this notion that we often have in our minds that Israel, all throughout the Old Testament and, and the church into the New Testament, they're just aliens. Like God took them and he planted them in the middle of the earth with no influence from anybody else, with no cultural influences, no language influences, no theological influences. They just popped up out of nowhere like aliens, got off of a UFO, and here they are. Uh, they have everything right. They have everything perfectly. God zaps their brains and just, and just tells them what to say when it comes to scripture. That's the view that we often have and we don't think through it. But that's not what's going on. These people are clearly influenced by the cultures around them, and that's a good thing. It doesn't mean that they borrowed or that they stole or that they were bored, so they just took these stories. We should expect to see influences from other cultures. It's just like we've talked about in regard to the New Testament, uh, and especially in regard to the Gospels. We've had Mike Lacona on to talk about this. He's incredible in this area. Uh, but but we've gone over how, when you read the Gospels, they're not, they're not biographies from 2024. They're ancient Greco-Roman biography. So we should expect the gospel writers to do things that seem out of the usual that we're not used to. Like to take a discussion that in in one gospel is a monologue, in another gospel, make it into a dialogue. Um, To change some details here and there to fit certain storytelling in certain audiences. We should expect to see that. It would be strange if we didn't. Well, it's the same thing in the Old Testament. We should expect to see realistic influence from other cultures. And it's not that they're stealing or that they're borrowing. It's that they're using these terms properly, A. And B, this is what the language was. This is what they knew. You know, when, when the Jews came back from Babylon, that's why we have the New Testament uh, authors and, and people during the New Testament times speaking Aramaic. They took Aramaic back from Babylon. That's where it came from. That's why they're not primarily speaking biblical Hebrew in the New Testament. So again, we see this with the term watchers, but we also see it with the terms cherubim and seraphim. Now again, uh, in Ezekiel 1, that's where we just left off before that rabbit trail here, but in Ezekiel 1, uh, we again see them described. Let's start at verse um, 4. This is Ezekiel's vision. He says, I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human being, and on the right side, each had the face of, the, of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. They each had two wings spreading outward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead, wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. 
the appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures, and it was bright and lightning flashed out of it, and the creatures sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. And then listen to this. Uh, As I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz, and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go in any one of the four directions the creatures faced, and the wheels did not change direction as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and all four rims were full of eyes all around. Okay, so again, you get this really strange description, a description unlike anything we would see on Earth. Um, And here's the question that I don't know the answer to. The question is, is Ezekiel recording what he's physically actually seeing, or is Ezekiel having a vision and then recording um, what he's seeing and what he's interpreting using language that the people would understand? So, for example, um, all of the the attributes he describes here, all of the features he describes here are uh, terms that would have described something that people would have been familiar with. It's possible that rather than describing what he's physically seeing, though, again, that's still a possibility, uh, that he could be just using the language he knows to make the most sense um, in order to describe the cherubim. And, and he's doing it metaphorically with job descriptions, so to speak, rather than literal physical descriptions. So, for example, when you see this idea of them being filled with eyes, and then you have, you have eyes all around, but then you have um, eyes full of eyes. Well, in, in ancient culture, they would view stars as angels, as being alive. And it's not exactly clear if Israel falls into this category, but it seems like they certainly lean that way. Uh, because they thought stars were alive, they thought, okay, well, those are some sort of spiritual being. Uh, and, and you see this used in ancient culture. You, you see stars being described as eyes because they thought they were alive. And so there is a possibility that what Ezekiel is actually seeing is he has this vision where he's standing above the four constellations um, of these wheels full of eyes that are slowly turning. He's standing above the four constellations. And I think this is certainly a possibility. I think it could be possible that that Ezekiel is using metaphorical language rather than physical, literal language. Uh, And I'll show you why when we look at Isaiah 6 real quick. Let's cross-reference. Well, yeah, let's go ahead and look at at Isaiah 6. We'll cross-reference to the the seraphim now. And seraphim is a term that means to burn or burning ones, uh, but it can also be translated from seraph, which is serpent. And so um, oftentimes it's understand as burning ones. That's, That's the easiest translation, that's the most common translation, and that's because spiritual beings, well, partly because spiritual beings are often associated with fire, with glowing, with metal, with bronze, anything shining or glowing. Um, This is how they're often described and often understood. But I think there's a possibility that it could have to do with both. And especially when you consider ancient cultures such as Mesopotamia and Egypt, you've probably seen those Egyptian creatures that they're, they're almost like a like a dog looking thing and they have the wings on the side of them um, and they're often glowing. So these, these all have similarities in their descriptions. Um, but part of the reason for that is this, this term serpent, uh, the most common kind of serpent that they would have seen in, in Egypt, at least one of them would have been a cobra. When you have a cobra stand up, it, it spreads out those things on the sides of its head. Um, so, it's very possible that both are in mind, that it could be serpent and burning one, and especially considering that 
cobras can spit venom at people and burn their eyes. And so this would have been well known in that culture as well. Uh, thankfully, I've never had to deal with having a cobra spit anything at my eyes, nor will I, hopefully ever. I don't like snakes. I'm like Indiana Jones. I don't like the snakes. Um, so anyway, let's go to Isaiah 6. Again, both options here, serpent, burning one, I think work together well, um, especially considering the influence around them, the, the culture around them. Uh, but Isaiah 6, starting in verse... Uh, let's start in verse one. So it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, pause. What do we see in common so far between the seraphim here that are going to be described in the cherubim? They guard God's throne. And I don't know if I, um, if I had mentioned this when I went over the cherubim quickly, but uh, the term cherubim is actually from a Mesopotamia word, caribou. Uh, and this, these were also creatures who were known to have guarded God's presence or, or guarded the presence of deities. And so these, these creatures are all described as guardians of the thrones of deities. And so it would make perfect sense that the same idea is used here, especially when cherub comes from that Mesopotamian word. But we're going to see something similar here in Isaiah 6. We see that God is seated on his throne. Okay, so he's seated on his throne, and above him were seraphim, each with six wings. So again, these are creatures that are dwelling around God's throne, who are guarding God's throne. Um, They have two wings that cover their faces. They have uh, two that cover their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices... The doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And so you see, in the way that they're described, and we're going to see this in Revelation 2, the way that they're described, they're very similar to the cherubim. Um, and I think it makes the most sense, and not just me, this is a, a scholarly view that I've adopted. I don't, I don't make up any of this stuff for the most part, by the way. I don't, I don't just come on here and say, oh, I got an idea. You know, these are views that other people have come up with that I've adopted for the most part. Um, But again, I think it makes the most sense to say that seraphim and cherubim are describing the same spiritual beings, these spiritual beings who God created and who are tasked with guarding his throne. We already know that cherubim guards God's, God's throne. We're told that explicitly. And we already know that seraphim guard God's throne. We're told that explicitly. And seraphim are only mentioned here in Isaiah 6. Of course, Isaiah is going to be using different language than Ezekiel would use because Ezekiel is in Babylon. He's immersed in Mesopotamian culture and Babylonian culture. Uh, so the question is, are they two different types of creatures or are they one just described, again, slightly differently? Uh, remember that the details are similar. If, if At first glance, you might think they're the same, but they're actually, they're actually a little bit different. So I kind of lean toward thinking that the cherubim and the seraphim are the same creature um, in that the descriptions of them are actually features or job descriptions that are given to uh, that are given to them in order to help the people understand what he's seeing and what their roles are. And you may have thought during that description, wait a minute, Nick, they have wings. It says right here, look it. Well, yeah, that's true. But cherubim and or seraphim are not angels. Okay, so remember, angels don't have wings. Seraphim and cherubim are described as having wings. Um, whether in a literal metaphorical sense, I don't know. But they're described having wings. They're described as, as 
hovering above God's throne, okay? So clearly they have wings. It's explicitly said, but angels are not cherubim and seraphim. Angels are lower ranking messengers, so they're not the same creature. If an angel appears in human form, that's going to be intense enough. If one of these, if if they are physical des- descriptions here, okay, and one of these creatures appears to you, you're never recovering from that. Okay, you're going to be, you're going to have nightmares for the rest of your life. I'm just assuming when I get my glorified body and my glorified brain and glorified eyes, uh, I'm just not going to be afraid of anything. And that's why this will be like, oh, wow, these are cool. These are wonderful. Because if they appeared to me right now, I'd probably just cry. I'd be terrified. And no, these are not aliens or UFOs. Okay, that clearly, the, this is, like we said, there's roots of this language used in ancient culture. We see it all over the Bible. These are not aliens. These are not UFOs. The people who say that are the people on the History Channel who are so desperate for views that they're just making stuff up left and right. And a lot of the time on those shows, when you look at the disclaimers, they tell you that. They're like, hey, just so you know, everything in this episode's made up. Thanks. Like, look closely, okay? There's no real scholarly work behind any of that. It's just speculation used in order to gain views. Uh, If aliens do exist, this isn't them. So take that, History Channel. Um, Now, let's go over, jump over to Revelation 4. And again, uh, we're going to see these similar creatures described once again. And we might just read all through chapter 4 here. It's really short. And there's so much going on. We could literally do an episode about like every word used in Revelation 4 here. We're going to touch on some of this later, uh, sort of coincidentally. But again, let's start at at chapter 4, verse 1. We'll see the same kind of, um, we'll see the same kind of creatures described here again. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I first heard, speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. So what do we have here once again? We have a throne. Who do you think is going to be sitting on it? Surprise, it's God again. So once again, we have a throne in heaven in this scene. And it says, And the one who sat here, starting in verse 3, the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald and circled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Uh, Pause. More on that later, the seven spirits of God. That's going to be important to our revelation thing, which, by the way, I'm starting to feel like we're getting to in a different episode. I might have to do an extension of this and do an episode just on the seven angels in Revelation. We'll see. Uh, But anyway, so these are the seven spirits of God. Verse 6, also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like the lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, uh, to worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne. Um, And again, of course, they proclaim God's goodness. You are worthy, our, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. So again, 
we see these same kind of creatures described there in verses six through uh, six through eight, six through nine. The, the four living creatures with the eyes, with the face of the ox and the man and the eagle. So, but you'll notice that again, the description is slightly different. So I think it, it really seems to make the most sense that when you look at Ezekiel, when you look at um, Isaiah 6, when you look at Revelation here, when you look at other places that similar creatures are mentioned or that cherubim are mentioned, it seems to make the most sense that they're not different particular creatures but that they're all kind of describing the same thing, but they're using the language people would understand, the language that would communicate a certain point um, so that they can, they can understand what the author is trying to describe here, especially, again, much more on this later, but especially when you consider the book of Revelation, um, it's, it's apocalyptic. That's the genre. This isn't a biography. This isn't just a regular narrative. He's going to be using all kinds of out-of-the-ordinary language. And he even tells us in this book that it's like, hey, I can't really describe what I'm seeing. Uh, streets of gold. There you go. Okay, but but I don't know what else to call it. I can't really describe what I'm seeing. The Apostle Paul says the same thing uh, in First Corinthians or in Second Corinthians when he says basically that he was once caught up to heaven, to the third heaven. Uh, and he's like, yeah, I can't describe what I saw. I'm sorry. So it's like, are they being honest when they say that? When John and Paul and etc., when they say that they can't describe what they're seeing, there's no way to accurately describe it. I take them at their word, and I assume that what's going on here in these heavenly visions is that the biblical authors are using what they have to the best of their ability, to the best of their knowledge, that the people would understand, so that they can use that to describe what they are seeing, what they are experiencing, and what they are witnessing, rather than literal physical descriptions. It seems to make the most sense to me on a biblical basis that they don't have the language or the means to describe what they're literally seeing, and there's no way we'd be able to understand it. Even as far as describing the throne room uh, and the, the temple in heaven, how much of it is intended to be taken literally and physically, and how much of them would have taken it that way? Uh, there's a good chance that they would have just understood what the author was doing, and that's why he did it. So sometimes when you're trying to understand um, a point in the Bible, we we sometimes get this overly literal mindset. And and don't take me the wrong way. I'm not saying, oh, everything that I don't agree with is a metaphor. Okay, don't don't take that route either. It's stupid. But like sometimes we get this overly literal, overly physical, overly anti-supernatural worldview in regard to the Bible. And, and we just describe things how we think they're supposed to be described. And it, through this ultra, super literal sort of fundamental sense, fundy sense, uh, and, and what happens is we end up losing what the author intended to communicate to us. So it's, it's not about just, oh, I believe what the Bible says. Well, first, you better find out what the Bible says. Because there's a lot of things in the Bible that say something a whole lot different than the way you might think they're supposed to be said. So it's not just about reading something, taking it immediately at face value um, as to what you think it means, and then just running off with it. There's a lot of digging to do. There's a lot of culture that this stuff is immersed in. There's a lot that they were doing. And I'm certainly not trying to make the Bible sound like the average person can't read it. That's not true. The way I would look at it is there are layers to the Bible. It's like you can kind of have this basic understanding, and then you can just dig a little bit deeper um, and deeper and deeper. And this this isn't Gnosticism, okay? This isn't secret knowledge. It's just information that's available to everybody. You know, it's like if you got a letter from like your great, 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 great grandfather, there's a lot of things in that letter 
uh, that he might describe. If, if, if your great-great-great-grandfather wrote a letter to you describing his house and his job and how he gets to where he gets and back, it's going to look a lot different than how it looks today. But if you kind of do a little bit of digging and you figure out what those tools are and, and um, you know, what he did at work and, and what they wrote with compared to what they write with now, what they ate compared to what they eat now, it would make a lot more sense to you you would be able to interpret the letter a lot better and actually understand what your great-great-great-grandfather is saying rather than take what you do today and impose it on them. You know, maybe he rode a horse to work, but you're like, oh, he didn't ride a Tesla? It's like, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a different world. So understanding what they did will help us understand what they were writing and communicating. And of course, it's the same thing when it comes to scripture. So remember, they had a very supernatural view of the Bible. And over the course of church history, a lot of this got lost. Um, I think a lot of it disappeared with Augustine. He certainly did not have a very supernatural worldview of the Bible. Of all the good that he did and brought, that was not one of his best areas. Uh, And I I think because of that influence, a lot of it sort of faded. Um, There's another phase of it, of course, when the Roman Catholic Church came into power that I think a lot of it was lost. And the same with the Reformation. I'm just going to attack everybody here so everyone will just uh, stop listening to me forever. Uh, But it's the same with the Reformation. You know, I love the Reformation. I'm Mr. Reformation, okay? Like restoring the, the, the concept of faith alone that was lost and buried for so long. Restoring the idea of scripture alone. Pointing out what needed to be reformed in the church in in terms of the gospel. I mean, I'm so thankful for that. But they did not have a very supernatural worldview. Okay, they they didn't view the Bible through a supernatural lens like the biblical authors did and would have done. And so we just have to be careful with how we view things. We have to do more digging than we might think we need to do. Um, And and don't just take an interpretation at face value, including mine. Uh, Make sure you do the research for yourself. And if you really want to understand God's word, it was written in a different time period. It, it, it's not written to us, okay, but it is written for us, as the famous saying goes. So you always want to have, um, as Dr. Heiser had put it, you, also, you always want to have a little ancient Israelite living in your head when you're reading uh, Old Testament history. And you always want to have a little first century Jew living in your head when you're reading the New Testament. You want to try to see it how they would have seen it. And if we can continue to do that and continue to work on that, I think we can understand the Bible a whole lot better in the way God intended for us to understand it. But with that being said, I, I mentioned we're going to have to get to the angels in Revelation next week. It's I'm not going to get it done in a timely manner if I try to. So what, I'll, what I'm going to try to do, I'm not going to make you wait till Tuesday, hopefully. I'm going to try to release a second episode sometimes toward, sometime toward the end of the week. I don't know exactly when, but I'm going to try to, uh, to release it as a bonus episode so we can continue on um, with the Divine Council series next Tuesday. Of course, this is part of it, but this, um, this bonus episode is going to be focused specifically on who the angels in chapter 2 and 3 um, in the book of Revelation are. So read the least, at least read 1 through 3 or 1 through 4 if you haven't. We just read through 4. But at least read 1 through 4 before this episode comes out. It'll help you know what I'm talking about before kind of having to figure it out on the spot if you're not familiar with the book. Um, but in 2 and 3, we're going to uncover who I'm convinced these seven angels of the churches are who the letters are written to in chapters 2 and 3. So we're going to do that. That's going to be the main focus. And then we're going to continue on with the Divine Council series. So I'm super pumped for that. 
Uh, that's going to be continued next Tuesday at 5 p.m. And again, don't forget to get caught up on those other episodes if you haven't. And make sure you hit follow and notify. If you just hit follow, it's not going to notify you of new episodes. So make sure you hit follow and notify. Um, hopefully today has been helpful in regard to understanding a little bit more about the spiritual realm Uh, a little bit more about angels and spiritual beings and and how they're not all interchangeable. They're different creatures, they're different beings, but they're all created by God under the authority of God in order to bring him glory, in order to highlight his sovereignty, not take away from it. And that's very important to understand in regard to the Divine Council worldview or the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. So with that being said, thank you so much, and I hope you have a blessed week. We'll see you back here, hopefully some point, before Tuesday at 5 p.m. on The Universe Next Door. 